The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Um, grab your Bibles and turn to Galatians 4. That's not true. I'm not going to beat up on you, but Paul's going to get a little fiery here. If you don't have a Bible, you just stick a hand up nice and high, and one of these good-looking gentlemen walking the aisles here will make sure that you do get one. If you do not own a Bible, that is our gift to you. We pray that it would serve you and draw you into a closer relationship with Jesus Christ. But we're going to be in Galatians 4, and we're going to be starting in verse 8. In, uh, in 2002, Christianity Today put out a, an article that declared that Dallas, Texas was the center of the evangelical universe. Dallas, Texas was the center of the evangelical world. And the reason they did that is because Dallas, Dallas, Texas per capita has the most mega churches, the most big churches, the highest number of churches, the most Christian ministries, the most headquarters of Christian ministries, and the most Christian ministry activity by whatever gauge they use to determine that of anywhere else in the world, and in particular in the South, which does tend to be kind of the evangelical hub. They call it the Bible Belt for a reason. And so they declared that the, the center of the evangelical world was Dallas, Texas. Well, if the evangelical world was limited to Oregon, Medford would be the center of the evangelical world in Oregon. Uh, Medford has more churches, more bigger churches, more better churches, great churches, more Christian activity, more Christians. It is sort of the, the one red dot, if you will, in the middle of all the blue, and I, I don't mean that to just go strictly political there, but I sort of just did, didn't I? Sorry about that. But it, I'm like, how am I explaining my way out of that? I just totally did that, and I'm trying to say I didn't. Uh, never mind. But, but that's what that would be. Medford would be sort of the Bible belt of Oregon. Um, and you go, but it's on the south. It's not really in the middle. Well, we're those, that guy that wears his pants low and has the belt down. But it's still, it's the Bible belt of Oregon. And it's not the area that most of us would consider. If I said, what do you think like the most frontline Christian ministry that you can think of, the most frontline Christian activity that you can get involved in, where do you think that would take place? Very few of us would pick Medford, Oregon. Very few of us would pick Medford, Oregon. I, I can remember when, when uh, we were praying about starting a church and, and meeting with Jim Wright over at Mountain and talking through all these different things and, and where are we going to do and where are we going to go. And, and, and I remember Jim encouraging me to plant locally. And on one end, that was attractive to me because I don't want to move. There were people that I love and I've known and got to serve for years here. And I didn't want to leave any of that. Um, but there was this other little sort of adventuresome part of me that didn't want to stay in Medford. I, like, I, I just was like, I want to go frontline, let's just go do something. And, and my wife, she felt the same way for different reasons. She grew up in Oregon, and like many of you um, who grew up in Medford, some of you, like my wife, were still like, I can't believe I'm still here. And, and so she sort of had some of that going on. She's like, I moved across the country, and somehow it sucked me back in, and I don't, I don't know how that happened, but, but we, we really had no plans of coming here, and, and in a lot of ways, because we had lived in big cities before, I almost thought that maybe that's something that the Lord would call me to do, and, and there was this idea of like, and I want to do that because that's like frontline, hardcore ministry, and I want to do that. I don't want to go where ministry's easy. I want to go where ministry's hard, and that's what I want to do, but increasingly, Increasingly over the years, I'm discovering that I don't think that's the case at all. In fact, according to our text here in Galatians today, the people of Medford, Oregon might be in infinitely greater danger than the people in Portland. Uh, 
we're going to be reading here Galatians 4, studying verses 8 through 20. It's a letter that Paul wrote to a group of churches that he had planted many years earlier. Galatia is the area we would refer to mostly as modern-day Turkey. And Paul had planted different churches there based on the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel that, that told the people that, listen, all of us have sinned and fallen short of God. A message that wasn't difficult to get across to them because it was an area mostly dominated by pagan worship during the time, though many Jewish Christians had migrated to the area once persecution in Jerusalem started. But it was an area largely dominated by pagan worship, Greek idolatry, all of these things. And so Paul came in with this message that said, look, we have all sinned and fallen short of the true living God, the God who created all of us, the God who fashioned all of us. We've sinned against him and we are helpless and hopeless to do anything about it on our own. But there is good news. There is gospel good news in that God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, into the world to dwell and take on human flesh, to live perfectly among us. He went to the cross on our behalf and as Jesus Jesus hung on the cross, their God poured all of the wrath of the sin of the world out on Jesus' shoulders. And to those who would simply recognize who he is and receive the gift of grace and forgiveness that he has to offer and believe in his name, there is peace, there is restoration with God, there is reconciliation, and then the further good news that God is putting all things back together. And that's the message that Paul preached in Galatia. A message of grace, not effort, not works, grace given to the people. And so these churches start out and they all kick off and they're flourishing and they're doing really well. But then as the time goes by, a group of, uh, uh, they call them Judaizers. They were people with Jewish backgrounds who had converted to Christianity but still held really tightly to their Jewish roots. Well, they came into the area and they said, okay, Paul's cute, we like him, um, but... He, he's left a whole bunch of stuff out for you guys. He, he put you guys right, right into the 102 level course and you skipped 101. And the reality of it is this, yes, Jesus is important. Yes, Jesus saves. Yes, grace, all of those things. But also this, you have to convert to Judaism too. You have to be circumcised. You have to participate in the rituals and the festivals and the celebrations and the, the cleansing rituals and, and all of the works of the law. So, so we're saved by Jesus and by keeping these works of the law. Like we gain God's favor in what we do for him. And the people were completely buying into this. And so Paul is writing a letter back to them to basically say, what are you doing and in this particular part of, of the passage, my Bible has a subheading here. It calls it Paul's concern for the Galatians. Um, and it's, it's, it's not hard, it's not easy to hear. Like there's some stuff Paul says that is hard to stomach, but important to consider. And so let's just dive in. But before we do, um, I in particular need to just pray for God's grace on our time. So Lord, we just come before you and ask that, that Lord, your will would be done. That Lord, this particular text that we have to look, out, look at today would, would just work in our hearts and lives. I pray, God, for anyone here who might have a hard heart towards your will or your word, that you would soften it now, that you would break down barriers. Lord, if there are distractions that would keep us from hearing your word, would you take them out of the way? If there's pride or arrogance or anything, Lord, any sin, anything that might prevent us from hearing what our Heavenly Father has to say to us, we ask that that would be removed. And so, Lord, for, for myself, I pray the same thing, Lord. 
Lord, don't allow me and my foolishness and my sinfulness to pollute the purity of your word. I pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us this morning, guide the words that are spoken, and if anything should be said that is not in line with your perfect will, God, may it be forgotten before we ever get out of these seats. But Lord, your word, may it last, we, we know it's gonna last forever, may it last forever in our hearts. May it not be like so many things that by the time we get to the parking lot, they're gone. May we chew on these things. May we meditate on these things. And may your word just, just change us, Lord. May we be conformed into your image. May our minds be renewed this morning by your word. We pray that by your grace and by your Holy Spirit. So Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O my King, my Rock, and my Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's just not fool around. Let's jump right in. Paul certainly doesn't. Verse 8, formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. So Paul jumps in right off the bat and he says, let me talk about who you used to be. And he says, formerly, before they were saved, formerly, when they did not know God, capital G, they were enslaved to these other, by nature, to these other gods that are not God. So what is it that that actually means? Um, he's going to call them later these elementary principles of the world. And what he's talking about here legitimately or literally is demonic forces. They were enslaved to demonic forces. They, they were involved in pagan cultic worship. And the pagan worship at that time put demonic entities behind, or gods with little g maybe we would say, behind all the natural things that took place in the world. And it was the responsibility of the people to go before those gods and appease that God that they might be blessed in that way. So for example, if you were getting ready to go on a trip and you had to cross a large body of water, you were gonna cross the sea. Well, Poseidon was the god of the sea. And so if you wanted safe travel across the water, then you needed to go and worship Poseidon because you wanted his favor. So you would pray to him, you would offer sacrifices to him, and the idea is you wanted to get his attention and earn his favor, do whatever you had to do to get him happy with you so that he would protect you as you go across the water. If you wanted to get married, you went to Aphrodite. If you wanted a, a great crop, you would go to this God. If you wanted your family to grow, you would go to that God. And there were all sorts of gods for all sorts of these little things that would come up in life. And the people would go before them, offer whatever sacrifices, pray whatever prayers, go through whatever rituals they needed to go through in order to please that God so that in return that God might give them what they wanted or desired, whether it be safety or prosperity or whatever. And Paul says to them, look, you were enslaved to that. And behind those things are demonic principles, demonic forces, gods, little g, that are not gods. Now, are there demonic forces in the world? Is, is the demonic world real? Yes, absolutely. Are there real demons, real demonic entities behind our idols, those things that we desire over and above God? Are those real? Yes. Are they powerful? Yes. Are they sovereign? No. And that's important to think about. Do they have powers? Are they real? Yes, but their, their power is limited. They can only do what the sovereign God actually allows them space to do. 
So, so in a sense, these forces of these demonic worlds, in reality, they're leashed. They can only go as far of a, you know, they, God gives them a dog run and that's all they get. And they can't go any further. Now, Hollywood loves demonic movies, loves the demonic horror stories, and they just do them over and over and over. I don't know what numbers we're on on some of these now, Paranormal Activity 37 or, or whatever it is. I mean, when I was younger, it was the Friday the 13th movies, um, which was just like seven, eight, nine. It's like Jason goes to the moon and whatever those things were. Like they were just, it was just insane. But because in reality, in the horror movie world, there's only three or four movies. There's really, there's only three or four scripts, I should say, and they turn them into a million different movies. It's just like romantic comedies. Julia Roberts did them all, and now it's just re-rolling out the same stories over and over and over, and, and that's what they do in the, the horror movie world, too. It's like Amityville Horror, Rosemary's Baby, and I don't know, something else. I don't want to expose myself too much here, and then they just redo them. But, but there's a sense in these movies, is there not, when you watch them, that, that there's a powerlessness in a sense. Like, like the power that this demonic world has sometimes good wins, but sometimes, especially if the movie wants a sequel, good loses. And the demonic forces win. That's not biblically accurate. I mean, if you consider the story of Job, for example... You, you have in the very beginning of the story, it says there was an appointed time when Satan came before God to present himself to God. Now, I don't know how many of you are military people or have military background, but if someone has to come at an appointed time and present themselves to someone else, which one's in charge? Right? The major doesn't come before the private and say, I'm here for inspection. And that's exactly what happens. And even in that, there's this exposure of the limits of Satan's power and what God allows him. Satan's like there and God says, have you seen my boy Job? Man, he is nailing it. That guy's so righteous. And he's like, well, of course, you spoil him all the time. He's a spoiled brat. He, that's why you just pamper him. If, if anything got hard, he would stop worshiping you. Why wouldn't he follow you when life's great? And so what does God say to him? He says, okay, you can touch anything. You can take anything, but you can't take his life. Satan ends up being more gracious than that. He leaves his wife as well, but you find out that's not really a blessing later. But anyway, I'm sorry. It's just she doesn't help the situation at all. And, and so, so you see that God gives Satan room to move, but limits him. Now, if, for those of you that haven't heard that story, if you think God's this cruel puppet master, yes, Job loses almost everything, but in the end, he gains everything back. He is blessed double for everything he ever lost. People go, yeah, but he didn't get twice as many kids back. He never lost his kids. God had them. And when he was given more, yeah, he had twice as many kids now. I mean, God literally blesses Job double, and even, even better than that, not that it's about the stuff. Job worships, draws closer to, and knows God more after all of that than he ever would have otherwise. So even when God limits Satan's freedom and gives Satan the ability to go do this stuff, God's still even then sovereignly moving through those things to make his own will accomplished, not Satan's. So Satan is not sovereign. Satan is not in control. Look at, it, at the gospel stories. When Jesus comes into sort of a confrontation with a demon, how does that go? They never argue with him, do they? Ever. When Jesus comes up, they say things like, are you here to destroy us before the appointed time? Because we checked our calendar. We didn't think it was today. Is it today that you're going to kill us? Like, it's none of this, like, I wonder how this is going to work out. They're like, oh, no. That's how they respond. 
God is absolutely sovereign over these demonic influences. And yet people historically, and in our story here, in our letter here today, with regards to Galatians, people historically have given their worship to a world or to entities that are not sovereign and are not empowered to be able to deliver the things that they continue to promise over and over and over. They'll tell us, I can give you this and I'll give you this and you'll be happy and you'll have this. But in reality, their power is limited and they can never come through. They don't have the power or the ability to come through on the things they promised, even if they wanted to, even if they weren't lying to us all the time. And that's what the Galatian people were doing. They were enslaved to an entity that had no real power, gods that are not really gods. So they're constantly pouring out their lives, pouring out worship, pouring out offerings to these fake gods, doing whatever they had to do to appease gods, hoping they would get from them what they needed. In reality, those gods were never even able to, to deliver what they promised in the first place. And so they were just slaves. They were going nowhere. And so Paul tells us, that before, they were, before, this is what they were, but then they are delivered from demon worship, from this, this idea of following these principalities and powers, whether they realized it was this demonic world or not, that's who they're enslaved to. And so Paul says to them that this was formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to them. But verse 9, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again? to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more. You observe days, months, and seasons, and years. I'm afraid I've labored over you in vain. Now, this is, this is hard here, but don't miss this, okay? Paul says, before you got saved, you were enslaved to demons, to demonic entities. Then you were delivered by the grace of God in the gospel. And he says, and, and now I'm afraid that you're going to fall back into slavery to those same demonic forces. But how is it? What is it that he's afraid they're going to do that's going to spin them back into following and enslavement with demons? He, he's not saying, I'm worried you're going to go back to Aphrodite's temple. I'm worried you're going to go back to Poseidon's temple. And I don't want you to slip back into those things. That's not what he says at all. He says, because you observe days, months, seasons, and years. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about Judaism. Think about that. He's saying, I'm worried you're going to fall back into the same kind of demonic slavery that you were in before, except it just looks different because these have choir robes on. It looks holy, but it's the same. That's what he's saying. He's talking about Judaism because the people are being told you need to start observing the days, the months, the seasons. You've got to do this on the Sabbath. You've got to do this at this festival. You've got to go to this feast. You have to do all these things. Why? Because you're trying to appease God. You're trying to do these things that you might earn God's favor. And it's the same demonic forces that are behind that kind of religiosity as it was behind worship of Aphrodite. This is what he's saying. Hey, guys, you were enslaved to demons worshiping these pagan idols, and I'm worried you're going to be just as enslaved to demons again through religion, is what he says. We don't naturally think in those terms at all, but this is what he says. Now, we have to be careful. We can't go too far here. Martin Luther once said that the world is like a drunken peasant. 
You try to set them up on the horse on one side, they just fall over on the other. And that's exactly the way we can be within Christendom. We can hear something and the pendulum in the Christian world can swing so ridiculously fast to the other end and go too far. So, so you'll, you'll get people to hear this stuff and go, oh, then seasons and stuff, we shouldn't observe any of those things because those are sinful. Hold on. Um, the, the pilgrims are a great example of this. So, you know, the pilgrims took passages like this and other texts that they took out of context or at least out of the balance of the word as a whole. And so they decided, all right, then no special days. Christmas and Easter will just be like every other day. We're not going to celebrate these holidays um, because we don't want to fall into worship of days and seasons. And so that's what they did. And then it's so ironic. So how do we remember the pilgrims? We give them a holiday. You know what I mean? It's like, poor guys, right? It's like God's cruel joke, I guess, or something. I don't know. But, but this is actually what happens. And, and when you're doing that, you're taking this one passage and say, we have to do this. So the pendulum goes, whoom, over to this other side. Yet Romans says, one person esteems one day as better than another, while others esteem all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honors of the Lord and gives thanks to God. In other words, what is he saying? The days are not wicked or evil or sinful. No day is, uh, days are amoral. There's no wickedness in the holiday. What becomes sinful is how we use these things. That's what he's saying. And so we don't want to go too far. And in fact, today we are celebrating a day. Are we not? I mean, this is the Lord's day. And as Christians, we come together on the Lord's day to celebrate. This is, if you will, ritualistic in a certain sense, or it can become that, right? We're celebrating a day. Would we all agree with that? And would we all agree that we're here today, we're not worshiping demonic pagans in this room, or pagan idols in this room. Would we all agree with that? But, but here's the thing. Um, that can only be true if you're actually here for the specific purpose of celebrating the grace and forgiveness that Jesus has given us, worshiping God and drawing close to him, that's the only way that can be true. Because if you're here today thinking that my attendance at church on Sunday is going to balance something else out in my favor, if you're here today and you think, man, I sinned a lot last night, so I better go to church tomorrow because I have a big week at work and I need God's help to get through it, and I don't want him to start out Monday mad at me. We laugh at that, but don't we do that? Like, I took a guy fishing just last week, and he was casting his fly rod, and, he, and, and his stuff went right into a tree. And I'm just like, oh, no, time. I'm ready to row over there in and, and the drift boat and get stuff out of the tree. And he gives it this one little, tw- little twitch, and it just kind of fell out. Just no tangles fell right out. And I even made the comment, I was like, man, you did your devotions this morning. That's the same thing in reality. If, I mean, we're joking, but if we really, if that's reality, even when we go into the mindset that goes, man, my day is just going so bad. You ever find yourself going, what did I do that has caused this day to be like it is? And go, I, I'm, I'm not praying enough lately. That's, that's why. Well, what we're really doing in a lot of that is we're going, if I had got up this morning and done that which pleases God, I would have earned favor from God and he wouldn't have allowed me to go through these things. That's what that's saying. It's the same thing. Some of us can be just as guilty. Maybe we don't do it annually. We might do it weekly and be just as guilty. 
And, and when we do this, this text tells us when we are using ceremonial religious activity as a way to try to earn favor or earn things from God, we are enslaved to elementary principles and gods that are not God. That's what this text is telling us, straight up. Now, let's talk for a minute about ministry on the front lines like I had mentioned to you before. Um, I was in Portland on Friday, um, up there for school at Western, and I'm in this cohort group with these pastors from all over the place, from Solid Rock in Portland, there's guys from Seattle, um, there's guys in Las Vegas, San Francisco, there's pastors from all over the place that meet in this group, and, and we just study for a day a month, and we take these classes there. And so I've got opportunity to talk with them. We, we all talk about what ministry looks like at the different places that we are, and because we're taking classes in a group where we're all pastors, everything that we study, we take a real practical approach. Like, what does that look like in your context where you serve? So we get to hear a lot about all these different things. And I'll be honest, like some of the things these guys deal with in these different areas in different cities is gnarly. I mean, they deal with all sorts of broken, carnal, um, e even places where it's not just like churches like accepted or, or even just dealt with, but hated. Like, they, they work in those contexts day in and day out. Um, but when you really think about it, and in our conversations with them, even some of them would admit to me that in some ways, pastoring in a context like this can be much harder. Because the one thing that they have going for them is when they're in areas like that, they don't have to convince someone that they don't actually know Jesus. Like, the people that they meet with in some of these settings, like, they are fully aware that they are not following God, they have no desire to follow God, they're not intending to follow God, and, and they start almost with an easier baseline to build ministry on when they're working with other people. The, the problem in dealing in a Bible Belt type of culture, and in the kind of situation that Paul's dealing with here, is that sometimes you're talking to people that really think they know God when they don't at all. And that is really difficult to push through. And the reason that we do this, and the reason people do this, is because so many times we equate knowing God to behavior. We equate knowing God to morals. We equate knowing God to religious activity, church attendance, tithing records, all sorts of things like that. Those are the things that we can so easily be drawn to as evidenced by the fact that we know God. But that's not what the gospel teaches us. In fact, in the prophets, especially in the Old Testament, you find God saying, all that religious stuff you're doing, please stop. Because you're, you're doing all the feasts and you're doing all the sacrifices and all these things, but your heart is far from me and it's annoying. It happens in Amos, it happens in Isaiah, it happens in Jeremiah, it happens over and over and over and so what happens is, is we go to those standards to equate whether we know God or not or whether someone else knows God or not, and we're using the wrong standards. In fact, standards that could be absolutely empowered by, in a certain sense, by these elementary principles in darkness. Judas is the classic example for this. I mean, Judas was all sorts of religious activity. Follower of Jesus, yes, at least it all looked that way. And so none of us, we, we know the story because we read it now, but if, if we were there and we were looking at the 12 we, and someone said, one of those doesn't really believe, which one is it? We'd probably all pick Peter. We wouldn't pick Judas. I mean, he was in the prime spot. He's the responsible one that Jesus has in charge of stuff. So 
We wouldn't pick him, and yet that's what happened. And, and now hear, hear what Paul is really saying here. The Galatians were into paganism, remember? Pagan worship before they got saved, not Judaism. So, so they weren't in church their whole life and then got saved. They were in paganism, and if we saw that, it would be, there's no other way to describe it, dark. Um, temple prostitutes, sacrifices, uh, self-mutilation, I mean, dark stuff. And we would see that stuff and think some of it even horror movie material maybe, and we would say that is dark and that is demonic stuff. That's what they were saved out of. That's dark and scary. And, and what Paul is saying that, look, you're in the same exact boat as that guy if you're trying to use religious activity within the confines of the church to earn God's favor and gain God's attention. It's the same thing. It's even the same forces, just one's wearing choir robes and one's dark with a pitchfork. And he's saying it's exactly the same. And Paul wants the church, the churches there, and we would say here, the churches here as well, to stop using that sort of spiritual activity as the gauge by which we are in good standing with God. There's only one avenue at all that brings us any sort of good standing with God, and that's who? That is Jesus Christ himself. And being known. And that's, that's why I love how Paul puts it. You've come to know God, or better yet, to be known by God. It is the grace and mercy. And, and Paul will go on in books like Corinthians, for example, to talk about the fact that someone growing in their maturity as a Christian is the one who understands more and more and more their spiritual bankruptcy and just their need for God's grace. Not someone who builds their case for spiritual maturity on their portfolio of religious activity. And Paul says, stop reaching for these same things. Now, now as, as he moves on here, here's the beautiful thing that comes up in verse 12. Um, this is just a beautiful thing. Now, everyone here is a theologian, all of you. You don't have to go to seminary to be a theologian. You don't have to read all the big, thick books with the big words to be a theologian. Everyone in the world is a theologian, everyone. It's just that some aren't good at it, but everyone is a theologian. The theology just means what you think about God. So everyone has different thoughts, opinions, understandings, uh, viewpoints about God. It do doesn't make them all true, but everyone's a theologian. And, and, and our desire would be, because we want to know God, we want to draw close to God, we want to know and be known by Him, is that in a certain sense we do want to grow in that area. Does that make sense? I'm not talking about scholarship, I mean we want to know God. But, but, but I'll give you a, an idea, if you want to be a good theologian, and especially those of you that are in any sort of um, like pastoral or leadership roles, if you're a huddle leader here, if you're a Sunday school teacher here, if you're an elder here, any of you guys especially hear this. If you want to be a good theologian, well, you, you got to know something about God, right? And, and it needs to be true, <laughs> obviously. If your idea of God is that he doesn't exist, bad theologian, right? But, but you need to know truth, Right? But, but here's the thing, if you wield the truth of God with no love for God's people, then you are a bad theologian. You're a bad theologian. The scriptures say that mercy and truth uphold the throne of God. And I assure you, God does not have a throne that we need to fold up a napkin and put under one of the legs. It's not wobbly, it's 
balanced, it's even. Mercy and truth uphold the throne. And, and so what happens is, is if you have all sorts of doctrine and truth and knowledge, but no love for the people that you're leading or teaching, then you end up wielding it like a club instead of a scalpel. And, and God's word is a, it's, it's to do surgery, it's, it's to pierce and divide, but to grow. And instead, we have people that, that might know certain things about God, but because they have no love for God's people, they're just clubbing people over the head and using it to beat our, our boys at Westboro Baptist Church, unfortunately. Do you know there's so many people in the world that their opinion of what Christians are like is based on seeing those yahoos on the news all the time? Their church website address, if you want to find out what time is the next Westboro Baptist Church in Topeka, Kansas service, and you want to go to their website, you know what you have to type in? GodHatesFags.com. That's the church address. And, and, and they might go up there and say things that are, and I am not approving everything they say, hear me on this, but blind squirrels find nuts. So let's assume that they hit, they hit a bullseye eventually, and they say something that's true, right? But at that point, who cares? When you're protesting funerals and calling servicemen gay, dead fags, and you're celebrating that, I don't care what truth you have to say. You're a bully, and you're a perversion of the type of leader that God desires us to be. Jesus spoke truth better than anyone else. Even the religious leaders of the day were like, this teaching is different, it's weird, and they could never trap him. He spoke truth. And yet, sinners delighted to come and hear from him. It was different. I don't think a lot of people wrestling with homosexuality are rolling into Westboro Baptist Church to find out what they believe. But people came to Jesus. And so you have to have both. And so that's where Paul shows this so beautifully because he goes into verse 12 and what does he say right off the top? He says, brothers, brothers. That's, that's a change in tone because what's he called them mostly before? Fools, <laughs> fools. But then he comes in and he says, he says, brothers. And then he says, I entreat you. And the word entreat there is a passionate begging that comes from emotion. He, he, it's as if he's gone to his knees now and he's saying, brothers, I am pleading with you. I am begging you. And you don't do that with people if you don't love them. And Paul loves them. Now, I, I know you can beg people because you're trying to get something from them, but some even believe Paul's in prison as he writes this. He's definitely nowhere near Galatia and there's no offering basket coming. So there's nothing that he stands to gain here. He's going, guys, I am pleading with you. I am begging you here. I entreat you, verse 12, become as I am, for I have also become as you are. You did me no wrong. He's just trying to encourage them to walk in the freedom that he's experienced. Remember, Paul will say in other places, I was a Pharisee above all Pharisees. Man, I kept all the law. I was all over the feast and all these things. And so Paul knows more than anyone how paralyzing that is and how imprisoning that is, and he's seen how demonic that can become, because what happened? In his zeal for religious activity, what did he end up doing? Murdering Christians. That's what it took it to. So Paul gets this more than anyone, and he's saying, don't be like me in this. He's saying, come to Jesus. Just come to Jesus. Stop killing yourselves and beating yourselves and looking down your nose at others. Just surrender 
Come to Jesus. He's saying, I've been there. It's no fun. It doesn't work. There is no joy. Your burden is heavy. The yoke is not light at all, and there's never rest. Even on the Sabbath, the day set aside for rest, they couldn't rest. They built a laundry list of stuff they couldn't, couldn't do, and you spend the whole day stressed out. Did I break the rest rule? Am I in trouble? I mean, there was no rest anywhere, and Paul's going, just stop. Come to Jesus. Please, trust me here. Come, be like me. Come to Jesus. He says, I entreat you, become as I am, for I become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a body ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? What was going on here with Paul? A lot of speculation. Um, You know, in Corinthians, he refers to a thorn in the flesh. People relate the two of those, which is definitely possible. Um, Don't know what's going on. The, The closest we can come with certainty is that it appears something's going on with Paul's eyes. Um, and it, and it, we know it's difficult. It was a challenge even to the people in Galatia because he says the thing that he was suffering with was a trial to them. Like he's going on to a trial and then just being around him was a trial. So I don't know what's going on. Maybe it was just hard to look at. I mean, pun, excuse the pun, but may, maybe that's just the reality. Maybe it was just gross. Maybe it was really contagious. Um, I don't know the situation, but whatever it was that was going on, it was hard for Paul and it was hard for them. And yet he's like, but guys, you received the message. You, you heard the gospel that I brought to you. You received it with joy. And, and then you were treating me as if you would treat Jesus. If you think of the, the teachings of Jesus, it would say, whenever you have given a glass of cold water to the least of these, you've done it what? As unto me. You've given it to me. And he's maybe reaching to that teaching and saying, you took care of me in such a way that it was like you were taking care of Jesus himself so much that if you would have gouged out your own eyes and given them to me if you could. There was this incredible change of heart. Instead of going to temple and making sacrifices so they could get what they want from God, they're ready to make sacrifices for the benefit of Paul, who's not easy to be around in this moment. And Paul's like, this was genuine, like, gospel conversion that's going on here. What happened? Where did that go? Verse 16. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. Now they, we're talking about those who are leading them away from the gospel that Paul preached. He says, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Now, in in these three verses right here, Paul gives us some really helpful markers to keep in the back of our mind regarding people we follow in Christianity, uh, teachers that you give ear to or listen to, uh, churches you attend, any of those things. Who are the people that we should follow? Because Paul is setting up markers now trying to differentiate himself and the gospel message and heart he has for the people and these leaders that have come in and he says in other places, bewitched them or led them away from this truth. And some of these are not easy, especially for the, again, you leaders here, these are not easy, some of them. Some of these are hard words, but, but it's still truth. 
And so, for example, I'm just going to give you three of them. So number one is this. Some people just want ears tickled, and, and they don't want to hear what is true. And so they'll find teachers that just tickle their ears and never deal with actual truth. That should be a warning sign. When a teacher or someone we're following or listening to is never dealing with truth, but just always seems to always just make us feel good and never, never talk about anything other than like, just, oh, you can get them, you're so good. Like, church leaders are not supposed to be like Tony Robbins' motivational speeches or any of that kind of stuff. That's just the reality of it is. In this room right now, for example, I know this for a fact because I know so many of you. In this room, there are people from so many different backgrounds dealing with all sorts of things. There's people in this room right now with cancer. There's people in this room right now with mental ailments. There's people in this room right now struggling with depression and suicide. There are addicts in this room. And and I'm not guessing and just saying, well, I'll say this stuff playing the odds. There's probably. No, I, I know some. There's people dealing with all sorts of addictions and pornographies and dysfunctions and pain and all sorts of things. And you know what we could do that would be really easy is we could just get together every week and just, I could get up here and just talk about how, you know what, man, things are about to change. Everything's going to change. What you're dealing with right now is not God's will for you. God wants everything. It's going to, any day now, the weather forecast, it's going to start raining $100 bills. And, and the thing that you're dealing with, it's there right now, but if you have faith, it's going to go away. And so I'm here to just pump you up and cheer. It's going to stop raining. Even if it rains out there, you will have this little pocket of sunshine everywhere your car goes. You'll never need to wash your car again. Like life is going to get good and happy and joyful. And I can just pump you guys up with all that kind of stuff and teach no real truth of scripture at all and we would all leave this place loving one another in a horrible and even damnable codependent relationship because I would feel really good because you guys like me and you would feel really good because man he just makes me feel good about myself when I talk but the reality of it is is you leave here without the truth of God's word to help deal with things that are going on in your life and I leave here having to stand before God and actually give account for the things that I teach which leaves both of us in a lot of trouble. And there are people that are out there that want to do just that, but here's here's the honest, raw reality that you will never hear in a church growth seminar. For some of you, you may have more days in the weeks, months, years ahead of you that could be characterized by tears than by laughter. That might be what comes down the pipe for you in the years to come as followers of Jesus. There might be days when the tears on your face feel like the only thing that you can find to quench your thirst. There could be days that the inside of your gums that you chew on in anxiety are your only food. There could be heartache and pain and you could be perfectly following Jesus in the midst of that still. That's reality. The truth is that there is a God who will walk with you through those things, that you can trust to get you through those things because he went through infinitely more than we can ever possibly imagine. And the truth is that no matter what we're dealing with when we walk out those doors, we have a God that will never let us go, that has already dealt with the biggest issue that we could possibly have, and that is our sin. And because of that, we can trust him. We can trust his promises that there will come a day, whenever it may be, that those things were gone. But I don't have to have it tomorrow because he's with me now. That's the truth. 
And, and, and if instead we try to peddle the, the, the joys and the pleasures, then it's no different than some of the idolatry in the past. You're elevating the creation above the, the gift above the giver. And so you have people that go to God to get stuff rather than going to God to get God. And that's idolatry. That's the same thing that the people of Galatia were dealing with before when they were worshiping in pagan temples. It's just got a choir robe on. So don't listen to those. Someone that doesn't teach truth or doesn't have, we need the entire counsel of God's word. Some things are really happy and make us feel good to read, right? Some things are hard. But are they, is one less true than the other? No, no. In fact, we, we need the hard stuff more often than we need the good stuff, to be quite honest, amen? That's the truth. Don't go to places where you just get your ears tickled. The second thing is this, non-gospel people want you to follow them, not Jesus. Now, you have to know this because Paul had just said before, be like me. <laughs> so then, then Paul's saying, now don't follow them. And so it would be easy to misinterpret this and say, wait a minute, Paul's just trying to get them to follow him. But no, when you look through the breadth of Paul's work and what he's doing, what he always ends up saying is, be imitators of me as what? I imitate or I follow Christ. So Paul's job is to point people to Jesus, not to self. Not to build followings for himself, but for Jesus. To make much of Jesus. To, to elevate the name of Jesus, not the name of Paul. And so this is a, a very big deal. Paul is in angst wanting people to follow Jesus. So leader, business leader, dad, household leader, everyone, remember, our job as Christians is to be disciples of Christ who do what? Make other what? Disciples of who? Jesus. And so even in, in the prayer that we had for Jason and Jesse's little girl in the baby dedication before, do we want a great relationship between that baby and mother and father? Of course we do. Do we want that baby to, in a sense, follow mother and father? Of course we do. We want there to be health there, but only in as much as mom and dad are actually following Jesus. Because the ultimate need for that little girl, as amazing and important as a family is, is not Jason and Jesse, it's Jesus in the end. And so our responsibility as parents, as business leaders, as ministers, is to just shuffle people to Jesus. We get our children for a short time, and our job is to shuffle them to Jesus because they need him. And, and so do we. And so gospel ministers, gospel leaders, gospel people are those who seek followers of Jesus, not themselves. And then number three is this. Non-gospel ministry, and this is really closely related to the first one. He brings it up separately, so I'm listing it separately, but this, this is important. Non-gospel ministry doesn't convict you. There's a lot of things about me that are ugly beyond all this. I mean, like, worse. Worse. There are things about me that I don't want you to know. There's things, and, and all of us could say the same thing, Amen. I, uh, yesterday, I, I wasn't going to tell this story, but I'm going to tell this story. Oh, this is bad. Okay, um, yesterday, 
Um, yesterday, I ran in the 5K pear blossom race. First time I've ever done anything like that. And uh, I've been working out with, with uh, Coach Dennis Konechny here. He's a trainer at Cascade, part of our church. I've been working out with him since August. And, and I just thought, man, that'd be a cool little, like, uh, I don't know, landmark kind of a thing to do as I'm trying to get back in shape. And so I'm going to do that. Entered the race and ran and had a great time. Did well, surprisingly well. Um, but something happened in the middle of the race that's embarrassing and funny and it makes me look bad, but it's too funny not to tell. So, um, so I'm in the middle of the race, and I'm on like mile two. It's, uh, 5K is like three point something something miles. And I'm on like mile two, um, probably already look like I'm about to die, felt it. And, and I'm running, and middle of the race, all of a sudden from behind, I got leveled by a wheelchair. <laughs> okay, so... There was a guy in the race that had like, a, I didn't even get to see it, just happened so fast. It was a small child, or someone was in a wheelchair, and he was running, and he was pushing the wheelchair, and literally both my Achilles, like it could have been bad, like ran all over me on the thing. So how did I react? Horribly. So here, here's what happened. First he ran me over, and instantly my pride kicks in, and I got mad. What's wrong? Oh, come on, you know, that kind of a thing like that. And, and he's, he, was, he was gracious, but he said, I'm so sorry, I just took my eyes off the road for just a second, I apologize about that. But I had that whole, it's like if you get cut off in traffic or something where you're like, ugh, and I, like my pride was there. So there's sin failure number one. Then there was sin failure number two. I'm angry at a guy in a wheelchair. Like, that's just bad. You know what I mean? That's just wrong. Why am I doing that? Oh, poor me, my ankle hurts, right? I mean, it, it was just stupid. So sin failure number two. Then sin failure pride number three was the fact that I started to feel ashamed because I just got passed by an old guy <laughs> who's pushing a wheelchair with a person in it in the same race that I'm just headphones in, just running along. And, and so then I felt like a loser after that. And then I, then I go home and I finish better than I thought. And I look in my age category. It helps to be old, by the way, in these races, just so you know. And I'm like, I finished eighth in my age category. I was like, wow, that's exciting. And then I looked at the overall thing and just a few, like, no, it wasn't a few. It was several spots ahead of me. A seven-year-old finished ahead of me. <laughs> Smoked me. So then I'm like, ah, feeling bad about that. So just in that one little thing that I'm going to go get involved in this because, man, I've been doing really well and I've been working out and running all this stuff. I, I, I failed miserably in that one little instance, one little nothing of a thing that happened inside me. In fact, after I crossed the finish line, I was talking to some friends and a guy came up to me and said, man, are you okay? I saw that happen. And I was actually even pleased by that because I felt validated by the fact that this guy saw that it was significant, right? That's, and that's... In the grand scheme of things, man, that's nothing. I mean, we have, there, raise your hand in here if you're perfectly righteous. Right? We will not be perfect until the day that Jesus comes. But what does the scripture tell us? In 2 Corinthians, it says that the spirit of God is molding us from glory to glory in the image of Christ. That he's working on us. And he's changing us. And so if I don't allow the truth of God's word at some point to actually come in and deal with and point out the things that are going on inside me, as painful as that might be, I'm only hurting myself. And, and the beauty of it, again, God doesn't wield that stuff like a club. God's doing surgery, but, but right behind the conviction that we feel when we feel those things is the grace and mercy of Jesus that says, Jeff, I'm doing this because it's for your good. 
and I'm growing you. I want you to be, I want you to be closer to me. It's not about behaving so that you have some sort of favor or anything. I just, I love you, Jeff, and I'm trying to grow you, and I only chastise and discipline those I love. And so it is good for us to understand as a church that sometimes we need to hear the things that are hard to hear and to not just seek to have our ears tickled all the time because God's doing a work in our hearts. And it's our responsibility to be humble before God's word and allow him to work in our lives individually and grow us that we might be closer to him. And he finishes by saying this in verse 20. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone for I am perplexed about you. God's not trying to crush us. He's trying to help us and he's trying to love us. Amen? But that being said, that if we took a really hard look at the things going on around us, even within this church, and I love this church, but if we were really honest and looked at everything that goes on around the church, there's, there would be some things that we would have to look at and say, that's just puzzling. Like, do we worship Jesus as fervently as we should, knowing what Jesus has done for us? Not always, maybe not often, probably not ever that, to that degree. That's puzzling, knowing what we know that he's done for us, isn't it? What, what about the times that we can gather here together and we can talk about community and forgiveness and fellowship and then leave this place even gossiping about other people that we saw in the service the same day? Or, or, or we can talk about how Jesus came to serve us and bless us and then pass on every possible opportunity to serve anyone else when it comes our way. I mean, if you came here to Heritage today, I said this a million times, if you came here to Heritage today because you were thinking you found like some group of like perfect people and you wanted to see what's going on, which I can't imagine anyone had that thought, but if you did, I assure you it's just not true. People go, I don't like going to church because it's full of hypocrites. Yes, and that's why you should come. You'd fit right in. So there's, there's things that we, if we're just honest, wouldn't we say it's, it's puzzling? Why do we do that? Why do we look so much like the world in some areas? Why, why do we sing about God's greatness and power and then be so quick to take things back into our own hands? Why do we declare, I surrender all, except for these things over here? You know what I mean? And hold back, like there's so many things like that, that if we were to be honest, we would look at in our lives and in the life of our church and go, that, Knowing what I know about Jesus and what he's done for me, that's puzzling to me. I'm gonna give opportunity today. We're, we're gonna worship one last song as they lead us in a song about the greatness and majesty of our God. At the very least, don't miss this opportunity to worship with the kind of fervency and passion that the God who gave everything for you deserves. But, but maybe, you're, you got, maybe you got your conscience pricked about something. Maybe there's something going on in your life that God wants to do some heart surgery even right now. Will you take that opportunity? Do not despise God and his discipline. It is for our good. Don't despise the conviction of God when it comes. Don't, don't, let's not harden our hearts when God is pointing something out in our lives that we need to deal with. Let's trust him that he loves us, that he cares for us, and that he is working in our lives for our good. And let us worship and sing with fervency and passion. Not because we think, if I sing louder, today's going to be amazing. No. 
we're singing loudly because of what Jesus has already done, not because of what we want him to do. Amen? As we stand and sing, the huddle leaders and some elders are going to be available in the back. Maybe you want to seek prayer on some things. Maybe it's maybe you're, those issues I've talked about, addictions, health, whatever the case may be. This is an opportunity. Let ministry happen in here, man. Pray with one another. Pray with the elders in the back. Don't miss opportunities like this, especially not for pride. Like, I don't want to move because then people will see me go and they're going to think I'm a wreck. We totally think you're a wreck. So am I. We are all wrecks. Amen? But Jesus loves us. This we know. And, and he is working in us. And we are sovereign over nothing, but God is sovereign over everything in our lives. So let's take opportunity to celebrate his greatness and to go to him, to cast our cares upon him and to trust him. Will you stand with me and let's pray? God, will you redeem this time as we come before you now? Or will you work in the hearts of people here? Will you change hearts, change lives? God, we know you are absolutely able to heal sickness. You are absolutely able to trade sorrow for a- and ashes for joy. You, all the things that, that we've listed off, every possible affliction, you are sovereign over them all, and you can take that stuff out in a second. And Lord, we ask that you would do such a thing. But Lord, we're not here worshiping you because we want you to do stuff. We're here worshiping you because of what you did already. Lord, if we never have another quote-unquote good day moving forward, we still owe you all the praise that we can possibly muster for the rest of our life because you have taken our sin. You have cast it to the depths of the ocean as far as east as west. You have adopted us into your family, and you are our Father. That's why we're here. That's why we celebrate. That's why we worship you. So will you move in the worship that ascends even now and in the hearts and souls of the people that are gathered here? In Jesus' name.